As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. Welcome back to Sauce Talk. Thank you to my little brother, Jake Hansen, for the new pod music. It's been about a year since my last episode, and I have been hard at work on a number of things. My new book is finally finished, and it is available for pre-order. The book will be released on March 26th, 2022. The book is titled Harder Than I Thought, Easier Than I Feared, with the subtitle Sports, Anxiety, and the Power of Meditation. And I'm finally happy with how the book turned out. My hope is that it will be useful to athletes and coaches and parents for how to set up a successful modern athletic career that also supports an athlete transitioning into the real world and living a good life. The book is about my journey as an athlete and what I learned along the way and how the practice of meditation helped me recover from some mental difficulties that I experienced in college and some other insights about being a young athlete growing into adulthood. So if you're interested, you should head to billyhansen.net forward slash book to pre-order a copy. You can get it in either ebook or print or audiobook format, and I read the audiobook myself. The first episode of Season 2 of Sauce Talk will be with Rob DiBernardo. Rob is a PhD in counseling and sports psychology. From 2010 to 2019, he was the associate head men's basketball coach at MIT, And in 2019, he was hired as the mental performance coach for the Toronto Blue Jays. So it was an honor to have him on the podcast. The podcast was recorded on May 6th of this year, so some time has passed. But everything we spoke about is still relevant today and will hopefully still be relevant in the future. So without further delay, here is Rob DiBernardo. Okay, Rob DiBernardo, thank you for joining me. Billy, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I want to start by just asking you how you ended up becoming a mental performance coach for the Toronto Blue Jays. How did that come about? Uh, I'll start with a one-word answer and say uh, serendipity. Hmm. Um, There was a lot of uh, graduate training. There was a lot of personal experience that sort of went into um, getting into this profession. But how it came about in baseball, really uh, unforeseen. I was finishing up at a doctoral program. And um, while I was (laughs) in the scramble to write chapters and organize myself for a defense I was also trying to consider next steps and look into the future and figure it out, try to figure out what's beyond uh, potentially academia for applied work. Mm-hmm. And I went to a conference in Toronto uh, for with ASP, the Association uh, for Applied Sports Psychology, uh, did a presentation um, with uh, my master's level advisor. And it had an ACT emphasis, acceptance commitment therapy, which I um, 
you know, passionate about some of that work. It's, uh, it's got an acceptance-based approach, which has mindfulness elements to it, um, which is a little different than some of the cognitive behavioral uh, frameworks that exist in sports psychology. Um, it was less about uh, evaluating cognition or um, considering the content of one's thoughts and more about relationship to thinking, hmm. um, which and I think the mindfulness community with some of the training I've had there is uh, what would be considered metacognition, um, the ability to be aware of one's own thoughts and notice one's own thoughts. And then also considering who is doing the noticing. Hmm. Um, so at that conference, I had a chance to present on uh, uh, an act, a classic act uh, mindfulness exercise on cognitive diffusion, which is uh, um, a bit of metacognition. Thoughts aren't facts. Uh, the ability to sort of decouple with one's own thoughts and not get caught up in the content. It's called Leaves on a Stream. Uh, did that in a presentation, um, did a few other exercises in that, and the Toronto Blue Jays were in attendance. Hmm. And I think they were interested in some of the mindfulness work, and they had a, uh, they were three years into installing a high-performance department within baseball, which was an interdisciplinary model where you had mental performance coaches working in a team way, uh, dietitians working in a team way, uh, trainers, um, strength and conditioning, which has been well ensconced in baseball and traditional sport for a long time, and having all these different disciplines work together and have that knowledge and expertise compound and pour into player development. Mm. And so I was really intrigued by that. Um, so I left uh, 10 years uh, at, at the NCAA le level as a coach. And 20 years in traditional sport coaching, and and after getting my uh, my doctorate in sports psychology, decided to go and become a mental performance coach in baseball, uh, and do that full time rather than sort of uh, as a part time thing, where my main thing was uh, coaching. Okay, great. And what what uh, could you tell me a little bit about what your job is like, what some of your responsibilities are, and wh what kind of things you do within the Blue Jays organization? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, in a nutshell, I would say it's um, education, application, and support. Uh, in season, I think we're heavily in support mode as athletes are full-on competing. Um, the minor league environment this year only has 120 games, but typically it's 152 games in 185 days. And it is uh, unlike anything I've experienced in other sports, just the um, competitive window lasts five, five and a half months. Hmm. And the sheer volume of games is, is an endurance test. And so there are all manner of supports that I think players need through that um, uh, to be able to perform their best and, and then deal with, uh, you know, the inevitable uh, uh, fatigue or, or, uh, body aches, um, things in their personal life that may come up that, uh, you know, may, may show up in the, in their competitive environment or at the clubhouse. 
Um, so the support part of that is pretty heavy. I think uh, out of season, we do development camps and that's a great opportunity to run programming, do psychoeducational bits um, and really the applied aspects of the work and some of the more educational aspects of the work. Um, and we take a need supportive style with the Blue Jays. Um, essentially working with coaches and then also uh, staff and seeing where the needs are and tailoring program programming to meet those needs uh, so it can have high impact. Um, what that can look like, Billy, is, is it could be anything from running mindfulness sessions uh, with players, uh, going over routines, how to develop a really I think refined and a process that each player has for their own development in terms of their preparation, what they're doing uh, before they compete, what they're doing between the lines when they're competing, when the pressure may often be at the highest, uh, what are the things that they do in that environment, and then uh, their recovery, uh, given the fact that they'll play a high volume of games and a lot of these games will be three hours plus. So they're in a competitive space needing high focus for long periods of time. Uh, what are their recovery, uh, physical, cognitive recovery? What modalities do they seek? How consistent are they with that? And so helping them develop that. Uh, the phrase, there's often a phrase, trust the process or trust your process or trust your training. Uh, I, th I think when players really have a very strong process where they have really high self-awareness, they know what works for them, and they are really consistent with those routines, and they can trust it even in the absence of results, um, you're on to something. Because the day, the day you plant the seed is often not the day you eat the fruit. Hmm. Um, instant gratification <laughs> is often not there. And so players have to trust, is what I am doing right? Mm -hmm. Will I see returns on this investment? Can I stay the course? Do I have a reflective process in place so I can see incremental gains? Uh, because sometimes I'm at it day after day after day, I have a, a, a player may have difficulty even noticing that they're progressing because they're so close to it. Yeah. So a reflective process helps with that. Um, and in addition, goal setting techniques, visualization, some of your standard sports psychology menu of mental skills will be in play. Mm. Uh, and some one-on-one -on -one work. Uh, some players just sometimes want check-ins. They want to check in related to their goals. They want to check in um, just to talk to have an opportunity to uh, express some feelings and some thoughts uh, as they're going because the, it can speed up. So the opportunity to have those spaces to be, to be heard, uh, I think is valued as well. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's all fascinating. And are you working across levels in the minor leagues? Are you specifically in one of the divisions? What, which levels of competition do you work with or primarily work with? So I've worked across uh, many levels in the major league environment. There are 
a lot of minor league teams within the farm system. Now, baseball's recently had contraction, and every organization has lost two minor league affiliates. But from the DR all the way up to AAA and then to your major league team, you're looking at about seven or eight teams within the system previously. I think it's five or six now. And the geographical reach uh, goes from coast to coast. In our case, from British Columbia with the Vancouver Canadians, which is now our high A team, to the major league team in Toronto, um, the only major league team in all of Canada. So we represent the country, not just the city. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the country, uh, United States, and then into uh the Dominican Republic. I've worked with players that were recently drafted that are being onboarded and are considered rookies and could range from anywhere from a very high round pick and have large signing bonuses to players that uh, are later round picks or uh, free agent signees uh, that may come with uh, without a signing bonus or a lot of dollars attached and and have had a chance to work through uh, a number of different levels throughout the minor league system. Okay. Thanks. And what I'm curious about how it looks practically. You said that some players want to check in, check in with their goals, check in about their routines. When you meet with the player, is it, does it look kind of like it would look if someone were just to go see a therapist? Are you meeting in your office? Are you meeting with players virtually? How does how does the setup look when you actually work with a player one on one? Billy, it's an awesome question. And uh, in so much of the training, they talk about this. Um, you know, w with sports psychology consulting, uh, how it's not your standard uh, fifty minute hour in an office setting uh, mm. one on one. Uh, that work. The Blue Jays now have a, a new complex and they have uh, consulting rooms and, and there's a lot more opportunity for that. However, a lot of this will be um, small group work. It will be it will happen on a walk and talk uh, before the day begins. Maybe they have a lift that morning and there'll be a walk and talk. Maybe there'll be a little classroom time but the windows are often shorter it's a little bit catch as catch can and a lot of this work will be in full view uh, of others occasionally it's a closed door setting um but often not hmm. and so it's a it's a pretty dynamic uh, working environment to have these conversations and to be able to do the work i think it requires a lot of flexibility um the ability to uh it, really make the minutes work for you when you have them because their days are full. Hmm. So can you, can you make the most of a 15 minute session on the top step of a dugout um, after a batting practice? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I can imagine given how grueling these players schedules are and how they need time for recovery and preparation, it could be hard to, to carve out chunks of time for mental work. That That's interesting. So, so you and I spoke last summer, just to give the listener some context, and we checked in and I, I learned some about what you do and we, we had a nice conversation. And there were a few topics that really stuck out to me that I'd like to dive deeper into on this podcast. So I'm just going to run through a few topics here and we'll see where we land. Uh, 
So the first thing that I have here written down was you mentioned something about the stress and pressure that comes from being on the cusp of a major league contract. And this is not something that I had really considered until talking to you. Like, I mean, I remember how much pressure I put on myself when I was just trying to win my high school batting title or make like the all-conference team in high school. And I know that these, these situations are all relative, but when I try to put myself in the shoes of a player who's stepping up to the plate on a day-to-day basis on the verge of making a life-changing leap from the minor leagues to the major leagues, which comes with a whole different level of status and wealth and opportunity and all these different things. Um, that has to be just a ton of pressure on a player who's, who's really trying to, to reach their dream of making the major leagues and they're, and they're so close. So would you mind elaborating on that dynamic and maybe comment on some of the dynamics that you see with the players that you're working with who are in that situation? <laughs> yeah, there. <laughs> I, I've gotten a, a chance to um, uh, get a little bit more context for what that is for players that uh, often spend, um, you know, on average anywhere between three and a half to four and a half years in a minor league system. Mm. Um, that's uh, that's uncommon. I think in some other sports, is a, there's a long time, and in some cases, uh, you know, f- maybe a thousand games played uh, as they move through the levels. But to go from AAA to the major leagues, um, wow, big difference uh, yeah. in terms of what comes with that environment, the amount of media, um, the agents, business managers, um, all the coaching staff, the you go from a single uh, single uh, tier stadium and a minor league to now a three tier stadium where you have 60,000 people there. Hmm. You have people there before the game that want a piece of you. You have people there after a game that want a piece of you. So some players experience that as pressure. Um, you know, it depends on how they perceive all those things going on in the environment. One of the things that when I'm working with guys, we try to uh, explore is that external circumstances, all those additional layers of stimulus don't have to dictate internal states. Hmm. So there can be a very high sensory environment. There can be lots going on and all these additional layers that could be very distracting if someone chooses to give power to those things in the environment. Yeah. But they do not have to create internal chaos. And I think there are a number of things that players can do to try to regulate uh, with that. And, you know, we talk a lot about a values-based approach. Um, it's certainly deeply rooted in the act stuff, values-based versus emotion-based, mm. which is not so much, you know, what you do, but who do you want to be? Mm. Who do you want to be in this moment? What are your values? And so we do identifying values, and we talk about that. And when a player feels as if they're being pulled from that, they make sure they have touch points with different things, if it's faith, if it's family. If it's uh, being a teammate, if it's loyalty, 
finding ways to get really connected with that values-based experience so they're showing up in that environment no matter how much of a circus it is and being aligned with their truest self and what matters most to them mm. and not being bullied by the emotions of the moment or some things in the environment that have the power of suggestion that can create sped up thoughts can create a lot of big emotions and can exhaust a guy as they're about to go through uh being in a minor league clubhouse potentially in buffalo and then hopping on a flight on a moment's notice going to toronto ending up in a clubhouse and you're playing that night and you just have to pack a bag and go hmm. and needing be needing to be ready to perform that night with yeah. a lot going on when you get in that tunnel of of the stadium and you're walking through that tunnel and you're greeting person after person after person and then you get into the clubhouse and you've got a lot going on there that's enough to uh, to knock a, a a really stable performer off their center hmm. Hmm. and so how to get recentered with that is is the work and i think you know, for the for the guys that are, are able to navigate it, um, we don't only work the values, but we do a lot of work uh, with the breath, uh, awareness of breath, uh, occasionally box breathing, occasionally really amping up the exhale to engage a parasympathetic response to cool that stress response. We also work the routines. What are the habits that you've developed that are really strong that have helped you get to this level and how can you continue to work those habits as you get into this new environment? Keep the routines. Hmm. Keep what the is, routines. What is box breathing? Box breathing is just another term um, that some people use for square breathing. And it's um, where you're actually manipulating the breath. I think Navy SEALs and first responders will use this as a way to make sure that they can stay steady in life and death moments hmm. uh it just involves a count on the inhale and that can be you know of one's choosing but typically it's a four count five count or six count and at the end of the inhale there'll be a count of four to six on the pause hmm. between the inhale and exhale and then on the exhale it's a four to six count and then a pause at the end of the exhale and then that's for a four to six count. And it's a manipulating the breath, controlling the breath with a count uh, for several rounds and as a way to potential potentially dampen a nervous system arousal. Yeah. Yeah. And also potentially to heighten some attentional uh, abilities too. With the count, there's some concentration practice that could go with that. Cool. Yeah. So I've, I've done that exercise. I haven't been, I haven't heard it called box breathing. That's, that's a good way to put it. I'm wondering when you recommend that players use those breathing ex exercises, whether it's box breathing or something else, do you recommend that they use it when they start to notice that their mind has tipped off balance or if they're in a, um, what is it? Sympathetic nervous system response that can feel themselves being hijacked by stress or anxiety, or is it preparation for the game or is it all of that? How, how do you actually 
recommend that players implement those kinds of breathing exercises into their game? You know, so we, we offer a menu of some different breathing and some different types of meditation. And we do ask players to be able to choose their own adventure in terms of see for yourself and what works. Mm -hmm. We do, we do have our recommendations, you know, for instance, um, I'll refer to the inhale and the exhale as accelerator and break. And for moments, players will say, you know, two of the biggest derailers of performance um, are either anger or anxiety. They can be two really powerful derailers of performance. I've seen some players get angry at a bad call, the way a coach has talked to them, not performing to their standard, or perhaps not getting an opportunity um, and get really, really angry and they want to prove they're going to make something happen. They no longer let the game come to them. They're going to make it happen. They're going to, they're going to force their will on something. Yeah. Um, conversely, anxiety comes up, uncertainty, uh, maybe not trusting one's own performance or themselves and circumstances. You know, in those moments, in those moments, um, I think working the exhale, um, even working a bit of box breathing, um, or we do some labeling stuff. So where they're noticing their breath, but they apply a soft mental label. Uh, mm. that, that has, labeling can be really, really powerful. And it can also be helpful to be able to notice um, thoughts aren't facts at times, just to be able to label something. Mm. And they can choose labels that work for them. For instance, it could be inhale, calm, exhale, focus. I have other guys that um, will say uh, inhale, calm, exhale, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's their cue to not hold that baseball, to grip that baseball like their life depended on it. Even though each pitch, each outing has importance how can they be in the moment and hold it lightly and not choke yeah. the baseball? Yeah. Yeah. And it's very difficult in that environment where, you know, guys maybe get some, you know, they'll get some opportunities to show what they can do. And some guys will feel like each performance is a referendum on their career. Mm -hmm. If I don't perform well, I'm going to be out of the lineup. I'm going to have diminished opportunity. The evaluators are going to see me as less than. I might be exposed. Uh, I might not have the talent. My stuff may not play at the next level. Mm -hmm. um, and so those things can, can lead to anxiety. And I think those breathing techniques as a self-regulation strategy, as a way not to, quote, unquote, let the game speed up on you. You know, one of the things we try to do from a perspective-taking standpoint, Billy, is that you can't really slow the game down, but a player can slow themselves down within the game. And at risk of getting a little Buddhist, but, but trying to get this idea that there's a passing nature to all things. Hmm. And that these emotional states, they will pass. These spikes in anxiety, they will pass. And so the ability to work the breath, uh, the ability to get aligned with values, the ability to have your routines that you can go to that are ha deeply habit formed, 
and you have habit strength with them, a lot of those things are present moment anchors. Hmm. They they provide ways for an athlete to get centered and get back to baseline, get the physiology, uh, get their inner state to a place where they can really be in their sweet spot and perform and not try to force themselves on the game or not feel overwhelmed by the circumstances. Hmm. That's all really great. Yeah, I want to, you've mentioned building routines a few times. So when you're helping a player build routines or come back to routines, are you generally encouraging them to do whatever works for them and to experiment with different things? Are you actually making recommendations for different exercises that might fit into a good pre-game, pre-at-bat, pre-start routine? And does that question make sense? It makes a ton of sense. And I think it's a really, I mean, it's an incredible question because it's a, it really gets into this idea of development and how a person sees development. And you know, from a from our department standpoint, we we take a an approach that the player is the expert on themselves. Hmm. Um, meaning, I think people uh, many already have a strong idea of what may work, um, and what they already know, uh, and so creating opportunities to build awareness creating opportunities for a bit of self-exploration. One thing I could say about the Blue Jays, when someone new comes into the organization, they spend time learning them. What do you do already and what works? What's a sustain? What could be something you could add in your preparation, potentially, after we've had the time to look at what you already do? What could you do in your preparation? What can you do on your game day compete? What can you do in your recovery and your recovery modalities potentially to add to your routines? Within baseball, guys are desperate. And I imagine within any sport or within any industry, anyone who's a performer, they want that holy grail of consistency. So I know, Bill, you and I talk basketball, and, and it, was, I mean, it was amazing to hear your experience. And what shooter doesn't want to be a knockdown shooter and be able to shoot 40% behind the arc, a gold standard, no matter who the opponent is. Yeah. You can do it against zone. You can do it against man-to-man. You can do it with short windows where there's contests. You can do it without a hand in your face when you have, a, 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 you know, it's a room service jump shot. you got all day to look at the rim. Mm-hmm. And... In baseball, I think players are so hungry for that consistency over a six-month season, five to six-month season. And so routines are really important in baseball. Uh, It was an eye-opener for me how much um, that was so important to develop these day-to-day habits that might lead to consistent performance over 152 or 162 games at the major league level. Mm Mm-hmm. And so figuring out what truly works for a player, not adopting what a coach or the organization has said, we think this is good for you, and therefore I'm going to say yes to it because I want to be um, someone that 
is responsive to what the organization wants, but actually do some self-exploration and figure out what is my process? What are the things that I do that put me in the best possible position to be my best? Hmm. And so part of that routine, what we talk about um, as players do some self-exploration, what is working, what is not working, how do you know it's not working? Is there a big enough sample size to determine that it is not working for you? Um, because many players, when they don't get results, will want to tinker and change. And, you know, uh, they're going to be in the lab working on it. And that can create some problems. Um, you know, if they're constantly changing and adjusting, it can create some problems. Hmm. So I, I think... It's an ongoing process. As I get to players that are further along in the system and they're in their later 20s, they've had enough reps to say, these are the things that I do. These are the things that work for me. These are the things that help me sustain high-level performance. And by the way, when we're building in these routines, we also factor in relationships, time to connect with, with uh, inner circle, friends, family, trusted sources. Um, there are a number of things that we try to build into that that we think go into holistic health of the athlete and really lead to great performance. Um, so it goes beyond just your standard sports training. Hmm. Yeah, that's 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 all fascinating. It, the You also mentioned values and having a value-based system. Or I, I forgot how you mentioned it, but when you're I really like that idea of when an athlete is moving up the ranks and they are enduring all kinds of new distractions, right? And there's more pressure, there's more media, there's more expectations, and they're, they're on the cusp of potentially being called up to the big leagues or sticking in the big leagues. And they have these, you know, kind of career defining stretches to, to stick with some of the core values that have sustained an athlete up until that point how do you communicate the importance of that to the players that you work with and are there any tips or techniques or exercises that you encourage players to practice in order to maintain connection with some of those core values or is it as simple as just reminding them to prioritize certain things over other things well, I, I think there are a few things that we do in terms of values identification. You know, there are some, I mean, there's some that enter this pro system at 16 or 17 years of age. And so you, you may, uh, you know, potentially working at a life skills, um, our life skills curriculum with them as they're learning how to be um, professionals. This yeah. may be their first job. And so they're learning how to be professionals in a, uh, a massively complex pro system. And so doing values work with someone at that level, they may not even know, like, geez, what, what matters most to me? At the end of the day, like, what do I stand for? What would hmm. people say about me at the end of my career, what I stood for? So uh, that can be a little bit more challenging, but we use some different values identification exercises. One of them is a retirement party and it's future self work so for instance you would have someone almost reverse engineer their career 
you say, and we do it as a, a bit of a meditation. So we would warm up awareness uh, with going inward, connecting with the breath as an anchor and start to warm up awareness of the body and the breath. And then once we've done that, we'll go through a guided visualization. You're at the end of your career and you are at a banquet hall and people from different stages of your life are in that room. And they are about to speak about you and what an incredible career you've had. Hmm. And they're going to speak about who you were as a person, not just your accomplishments as a baseball player, but who you were as a person. And maybe it's your family that gets up and speak. Maybe it's your grade school coach that you had a good connection with. And he is in the room that night. And then at the end of the night, you get to go to the dais and let people know what it all came down to for you and your career, what mattered most. Um, and so we do that experience. There's a number of prompts. Uh, we usually take some time with it and a player gets to see themselves at a career at the end of a career where it's been well done and they've lived uh, really uh, true to who they want to be. Now, there's so many things that can be an assault on our authentic selves and what we consider our true north. There are so many moments where a young person, when there's power differentials, will seek to please or manage impressions of others. Hmm. And they'll do things to consort themselves to get approval, to get opportunity, to politic, to try to manipulate the environment to their own ends. Um, and that's quite natural. And there's a big difference between trying to prove and trying to improve hmm. where the standards are self-referenced. They're your own. Who shall I be each day? And no matter the environment, I'll stay true to these things. And so we'll do other exercises through ACT, acceptance, commitment therapy. There's a bullseye exercise. Um, and there are a couple of others that help identify values. Now, in terms of the being values aligned as they move through uh, the different levels and there are temptations and distractions aplenty, and it's an ever-changing thing. Values aren't achieved, and it's like, I'm good, and now I'm going to go through my career. They're aspirational, um, and there are many things that conspire to pull us off of those. So the reminders are it's a values tracker where we get with guys and, you know, it could be something, here's your North Star, and here's the list of the values we worked out when we did our values identification. Here's um, being lost down here, and here's off the path, and just write where you are right now in relation to your North Star and your values. Hmm. Why is that? What would get you back on a path? What do you need? Yeah, those are great. I, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm done, Billy. I'm done. Okay. No, I just, those are great exercises. I love the retirement party exercise. And as you're explaining that, I couldn't help but think that that would be a good exercise for if you were not an athlete or you're done with athletics to do the same thing for your funeral and to think about the, the if you were, what people would say about you at your funeral and if you live true to yourself along the way and you weren't contorting yourself and you were living with integrity. And yeah, I actually mentioned that in some of my writing that at the end of an athlete 
athletic career feels like kind of like your first death. I'm not the first one to to notice that. I many that that quote, an athlete dies twice has been attributed mm-hmm. to many different athletes, but um that that exercise has to be really powerful to kind of fast forward and think about the it gives you kind of a bird's eye view of your current actions and when it's all over what do you want to be remembered for and how do you have wanted how do you want to have acted um in each game in each practice in each in each day so i really love that it's great yeah and there is something called a performance obituary but uh you know, where you could, um, you can one, either write your own <laughs> performance obituary about your career. Mm. Um, but the retirement party has a, has a celebration. It invites a lot of other folks into the room mm. and you get a chance to see them step to the day as from all stages of your life. Mm. And in a Buddhist frame, uh, I think this gets at some right intention. Yeah. Right intention that that sense of purpose that sense of values alignment and going about each day and what you do with right intention when that's off that creates a lot of internal conflict and you can often have a person or a player not at peace and they're fighting themselves in their pro experience and that's tough that's psychologically exhausting yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, one, I want to pivot to another topic that we discussed on our last conversation, something that stuck with me. You mentioned, and I think you may have worded this differently, so you can you can explain it yourself, but it was <clears throat> when an athlete moves from one level to another, and maybe they move from the top of one hierarchy to the bottom or to the middle or the bottom of another. So from this resonated with me because I think I struggled with some mental issues with my confidence and I experienced anxiety when I moved from being the top dog on my high school teams. You know, even early on in my high school career, I had a ton of potential. I was doing well at the varsity level. And then I moved into being the go-to player on my basketball team and one of the top guys on my baseball team. So I, I kind of, I, you know, I took the, the field and the court with a level of comfort and confidence and ease that I sort of took for granted. And then I moved to college basketball. And I remember one of the first open gyms that I showed up at Regis, noticing that the other guards on the team were doing windmill dunks before we scrimmaged. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I can't do that. And... And then just, you know, noticing that there are a number of deficiencies with my athleticism, with my defensive training, with the speed of the game that I wasn't used to, and how that really shook me psychologically early on in my basketball career. So do you have anything else to add to that dynamic that you, do you, do you, do you notice your players going through something similar when they move through the ranks? Oh, without question. And and I appreciate you sharing that. And in our last conversation, you talked quite a bit about that, and I was, I was really blown away by your reflections on it. And I imagine some of that will be in your book. Um, mm-hmm. I, I look forward to, to reading that because I thought, in our conversation before, it, you did a really nice job bringing that out. I think how I I see it, um, 
and, and it plays out very, very powerful in this environment. When, when someone is a high status member of the team, um, and many of the guys that we're dealing with were the man at some point. So they were a high status individual on a team and oftentimes a high status individual within their community. Hmm. They were really good at something. And other people got a chance to witness them um, be really good at something. And so they drew a lot of identity and a lot of confidence from that. And then when you go from being a high status member in a certain community and a certain team environment to becoming a quote unquote uh, low status member, that has some real dangers to confidence and a person's sense of self mm. and their identity as an athlete. Um, it can become unstable. Mm. And so this happens to many athletes where all of a sudden they went from an environment that believed in them and they performed and they showed that they could deliver. And now they're in an environment where they're stepping up in competition. A lot of people are good. A lot of people were the man. And one of the biggest things, um, losing a role, having a diminished role, being ambiguous in your role, losing status, it's called um, in some cultures losing face. Mm. And it brings dishonor. And to be stripped of status or to be downwardly mobile is a very painful occurrence for a lot of folks. Yeah. So in this environment, there are a lot of guys that will come in and in this, in a minor league system, you're dealing with 180 guys. And some of whom, well, many, most of whom are keenly aware of your draft status. Hmm. So if you're a one through five draft pick, you're coming with, you're a millionaire. Hmm. Your, your signing bonus is seven figures. You're driving onto the lot in a pretty nice car and and you've got some organizational skin in the game. They, they've, they've invested and people are keenly aware of that. Yeah. And then another guy that's drafted, uh, you know, in the 30th round or later, that could be to them, oh, you know, formerly high status, maybe low status. They may take it as a way I am defined by my draft order and I am maybe not valued or I'm not seen as valuable as so-and-so. Anyway, this plays out all the time. Players are trying to figure out where they'll land, which team, am I going to be single A, double A, and they'll wrestle with this. And they'll see short-term or sometimes more persistent uh, doubts, and it affects their confidence, which in turn affects performance. And a lot of times they'll perform below their talent level and abilities because mm. of that. Yeah. Um, so a really, really difficult thing. Um, and, and I know uh, you and I talked a little bit about this, ways to sort of uh, find confidence in these moments. Um, but for players that go from a situation where they have a number of people in their environment that are affirming that they're good, that show belief in them, and they've delivered, and now they've got to go into an environment and establish themselves again. 
Yeah. Often there are growing pains that come with that. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of the, it might be hard to communicate that to someone. I could imagine someone trying to warn me of that when I was in high school. And it would be hard for me to imagine just because my whole life, you know, I, I was very tall in elementary school and I was athletically gifted in a small town. And so I, I, I think it would have been hard for me to understand what my mind would be like in my first couple of years of college had someone tried to describe it to me. Do you have, because I think, you know, this, this applies to every level of, of, of sports. I mean, it could even apply to a, you know, uh, someone who's being drafted into the NBA who was averaging 20 in their mid-major college team. Right. So I'm wondering if, if you were to give any advice to someone who was making a transition for how to prepare for that shift, would you have anything to say to an athlete or to a coach who is working with an athlete? Or do you think it's more about, you know, it's inevitable that there are going to be some challenges and you have to just do the work, the, the, the things that we've described already with mindfulness and routine building and value-based, you know, confidence building exercises that um, should become the core of, of the work that you put in to get back on track? You know, I, I would say a- any type of experience where you're going from one environment to the next, I mean, it's a transition state. It's a limbo state mm-hmm. where you're established in one area or community and then you're entering a new one. Um, that is a transition state. And so it comes with a period of adjustment. Mm-hmm. So I do think perspective taking is part of it. I think the ability to gather as much information as possible. Um, I think info gathering, I think those were for, you know, in the college uh, space, I, I saw players that really um, recruited the school rather than the school recruiting them. Hmm. Meaning they ask questions in their recruiting process. They, you know, weren't uh, seduced by, you know, some presentations necessarily from tours or different things that they saw. They, um, they didn't fall for the steak dinner. <laughs> that, yeah. And, and I think, you know, you know, that, that ability to, I think, ask questions and really be authentic about goodness of fit. Um, for a young athlete, I think that's really, really difficult to walk into a room with coach or coaches or go to a university as you're going on college visits, or maybe you're not even going on college visits, but you're just talking on a phone and to really be able to recruit the school that you're going to and figure out what's going to be a good fit. Yeah. You know, for the, for the player that doesn't get a lot of interest, they may be flattered by any attention that they get and willing to do anything possible. Yeah. But what what I think uh, helps is is developing rock solid supports with uh, the people around you. So as you're transitioning, you have them to lean on as you're getting uh, established in your new environment. Gather as much information before you get to the new environment as possible. Um, really t- uh, do some self awareness work, self awareness building on on what are the things that work for you. Like what are some of the habits and routines that you have that work for you. Um, I think that's, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think what else, 
you know, for the adjustment period that inevitably comes. I think in the pro environment, it's almost like drinking from a fire hose. There's just a lot mm -hmm. um, for some that are coming from the DR and then come to a, a pro complex. Um, you know, that perspective taking of, of allowing room for growth and development uh, is is a big one, too. Hmm. Hmm. You know, let me let me think on it a little bit more as the call goes, because I think a, I think it's a really important one. Yeah, um, I think once the player is in the environment and I'm working with them is a little different than giving advice to right. the player before they arrive to potentially set them up for as smooth a transition as possible. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so if you were, let's say you're meeting with a player who's, who's in the shit, having a tough time, um, they're maybe, let's say a player's underperforming in their new environment and they're, they went from being the man at their last place, the man or the woman at their last place. And they're now, underperforming for their own expectations and they're in an environment of much higher competition and it's been a while they're they're in a kind of a sustained slump how are there any specific things that you would do with that player to address that situation or is it similar to some of the exercises that we've already discussed you know i i think with all this billy i think the uh building the relationship uh, with that player as they enter the system is really important. Mm -hmm. um, I get an opportunity at times to put out the welcome mat for draftees. It's a, it, it's an honor to meet these guys on their first day. Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of these guys, this is a dream come true. Mm -hmm. And so when we get through some of that afterglow um, of the excitement of getting drafted and being part of the pro environment, then we begin some of that onboarding work and that onboarding work i think is building that relationship and i think once that relationship starts to get built out then we can start getting into some of the additional work which is you know what is you at your best what is you at your best and what gets in the way of you being the best version of yourself hmm. And so it's an opportunity for me to hear about them at their best and what's their identity as a player and as a person when they're feeling most confident, because I often haven't viewed it yet. So I get to hear from them in a session what would be them as their best and then contrast with that what gets in the way and tell me about external things, things in the environment that might be impediments to you being your best version of yourself hmm. and then internally what are some of the things that are going on that potentially are derailers and that get in the way hmm. and so that gives me an idea a little bit of window of what are some of the things what are some of the thoughts some of the doubts some of the things that might be going on from in internally and yeah. what are some of the internal external constraints and then when they're at their best, what I could train my eye to, what it would look like. Hmm. And then sort of at a rating one to 10, where would you say you are in terms of the best version of yourself during this very early stage of your career? And then they would 
give me a listing. And then I would say, what would get you to a 10? What do you think would get you to a 10? So this would be an opportunity to identify what are some of the things that they think they would, would work for them. Yeah. Also, what, what has worked in the past? Have you worked with someone um, on the mental game in the past? What were things that worked? So I'm identifying and trying to build off stuff that they already do that may work. And then once we get through some of that, I think being able to, uh, you know, start to do some of the mindfulness work as a self-regulation strategy, begin to bring in some of, of what their process and their routines might be, and really trying to get it to digestible bits. You know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. Um, yeah structure lessens anxiety so for the player that's coming in new and there's no pattern recognition at all they came from a college environment where they were drafted right out of high school and now they're in a spring training environment and they're dealing with 200 dudes and the schedule has infinite complexity complexity to it logistically it's complex they don't even know where to be structure lessens anxiety let's take a look at today let's take a look at the schedule and where you need to be, and and then we'll work on how you're going to show up for each thing and try to do it in digestible bits and subdivide it and make it more manageable. Yeah, that's all That's all great. I want to try to describe what, in what my view was a flawed strategy for dealing with issues of confidence. And we spoke about this in our last conversation. So... And this is a little bit of a different, difficult thing to describe. I did my best to describe it in my writing, but we'll see if I can make sense of it here. So basically, whenever I was having difficulties in my sport growing up and I was having a tough stretch of games or wasn't playing as well as I would like, my go-to strategy was always just to use brute force to try to fix all of my mental problems. The only reference that I ever had was physical training. So let's say I was, you know, I, I, sh I was shooting, you know, 20% from three for the last three or four games. My solution was always just to go to the gym late at night and get, you know, 500 shots up. Or if it was baseball, if I wasn't hitting well, I would just go to the batting cages twice a day and just, and basically I would fall back on this tendency to just outwork everyone around me. And I, I thought that if I sacrificed enough and if I suffered enough with my training, that I'd have to be rewarded by confidence in the future. You know, if I saw the ball go through the net enough times, I'd be confident. If I hit enough line drives in the cage, then I'd, I'd be rewarded with confidence in the games. And I thought this was working for me in high school, but when I reflect back, it might have just been that I was a good player and you know, this might have actually been preventing me from getting out of my slump and I was just bound to get out of it anyway because I was a good hitter and a good shooter and I was, you know, one of the top players in, in my leagues. When I got to college and I was struggling, I went through these frantic flip-flops between either pretending that I no longer cared that basketball was stupid as a way to protect my ego and it didn't matter that I was riding the bench. No one goes to our games anyways. We suck. Like that, that was like a defense mechanism. Or internally, I would show up to the gym at 8 p.m. and pull out the, the shooting gun and shoot till I was dripping sweat, even though we had practice early the next morning as, 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 a, as an attempt to, to fight my way out of my slump. And 
I'm wondering if you notice this tendency in some of the players that you work with. I, I think I've noticed it in some of my teammates and some of the, the, the players that I've met with in my time as a GA and some of the meditation stuff that I've done with players. All I need to do is go to the gym and get a thousand shots up. And all I need to do is, you know, no one works as hard as me, so I can always get out of my slump. Is this some, is this a dynamic that you're familiar with? <laughs> I mean, Billy, that's a, that's a hell of a reflection. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, unfortunately, uh, I, I don't believe, uh, people can outwork their anxiety. Yeah. Um, there are a number of people that try to, um, greet, uh, those feelings of discomfort or unease or some feeling states that may be aversive, um, that could be anxious states, uh, and train their way through it. I think it's very hard to outwork or out exercise or outrun anxiety. Um, and you and I talked about this before in the acceptance commitment therapy, there, there's actually the belief that any attempts to suppress, avoid, numb, um, anxiety or certain feeling states only increases and amplifies their impact. Hmm. Um, and so some people may find themselves down the road having more acute episodes. Um, they may physically try to train and exhaust themselves as a way to potentially quiet all that. Uh, but yet there it is. Um, in, in some of the work uh, that we do, which is the relationship to thinking and also relationship to feeling um, that comes from acceptance and commitment to therapy is is the ability to normalize that. That part of being in competition means heightened states. There's going to be some heightened states of concentration when fully absorbed in the task at hand and feeling, quote unquote, that float, the flow experience. Mm -hmm. And then there are going to be other times where people are going to feel quite dysregulated. They're going to experience doubt. They're going to feel sped up and they're going to try to find ways to cope the best they can. And um that that's uh true of feelings too that arise and how those are interpreted and and we try to normalize that that uh doubt uncertainty uh pro athletes talk about it all the time and it's actually quite normal and thoughts aren't facts and and the more uh, engage or avoid or um try to repress that it can actually amplify its intensity and the same yeah. thing with feeling states. They, they, feelings are part of it. People have uh, emotional responses to things that occur in their life, especially in the competitive environment. It's a crucible environment. There are people that are witnessing you at work. There, are, there is pressure. There's yeah. pressure to perform. There's pressure for your skills to hold up against the best competition in the world. Yeah. Uh, in this particular environment, and so being able to normalize that feelings and thoughts are very much a part of it, but it's our response to those internal states that makes all the difference. Yeah. Um, so I think the ability to, to work with that and notice it, I mean, you, you, I think, know this terrain well. I think you've written a book on this experience. You were someone that uh, achieved at a really high level. And we're noticing that things things were arising within you that maybe were 
not facilitative of you being your best in this college environment. And so what do I do? Coaches can give me directives to focus, relax, play with confidence, but how? Yeah. And everyone will have moments like this. There'll be environments or moments that we have in our lives where we are off of our center and that we experience these moments. And then what do people do? What do people yeah. do? And I think I think mindfulness is a powerful tool for us to get connected to our inner experience, be it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and develop wise relationship to thoughts that their doubt is present or feelings that I, I, I'm, I'm noticing my body is feeling a certain way and this feels like nervousness and I'm not trusting myself in this environment. Hmm. And so that is scaring the shit out of me and I am going to go work. I'm going to get thousands of jump shots and make that nagging fear or whatever it is go away. But, you know, there's an expression, I think, from Gestalt therapy, which says, you know, fear is merely excitement without the breath. Huh, I love that. That's great. And so just to get, and Thich Nhat Hanh talks about this a lot. He's so, just the awareness of breathing in and the inhale and the awareness of your exhale orients you to the present moment, the only moment you have power over. Hmm. And allows you to get present. And you're not in the time machine. So much of worry and anxiety is is located in the future and anticipating, you know, not, things not going well, not trusting yourself for the, the task that's at hand, maybe catastrophizing. And just the ability to get to your breath is the ability to work with a fear response. And it has biological basis with the stress response, too what it does for nervous system arousal. Yeah. Yeah. And what a relief it was. I mean, initially when my sports psychologist in college recommended some of that to me, it, I didn't really understand. The whole purpose was to get rid of the anxiety. I wanted to feel better. I wanted to feel like I did in high school. I wanted to, you know, at the base level, I think I just wanted to feel like a member of my tribe and to contribute that, that, that's where a lot of my anguish was coming from, I think, was being on scholarship and not contributing. And so when she said, you just need, you need to pay, you know, she did it in a very skilled and gentle way. But the, the, the point of what she said was, you need to just stop wrestling with it, pay closer attention to it. I thought that was crazy. I was, you know, what, what, what's that going to do for me? But it didn't take long for me to understand that it was such a relief to not, to kind of give up the struggle with, those feelings and to just pay attention to them and how they kind of lost their power when you relaxed and just noticed the raw sensations of them. And that was a big shift too. When, you know, I used to also do things and I, you know, I've heard this, this work for other athletes. I've actually had players on the podcast who have mentioned that this kind of exercise worked for them, but it definitely didn't work for me. It was telling yourself things like, you're the best fucking shooter on the court or mm -hmm. you're, you're a great player. This guy can't stop you. This kind of like positive self-talk that I used to use in high school, but I gave up later in my college career. Um, for me, it was much more effective to notice thoughts as thoughts. And like you said, thoughts aren't facts to notice them, let them pass, come back to the present moment. I'm wondering if, is there 
a disagreement or any kind of divide or difference of opinion between people in your field about positive thinking, content of thoughts versus um, acceptance and um, noticing thought as thought? Is that, is that, are there, is, yeah, do, do you see I, those I, as, as in conflict with each other or can they be complementary? How do you think about that divide? Um, it does go on in the field. And I think there's some people that are rooted in a cognitive behavioral tradition um, in which some of that positive self-talk, I think, uh, would be part of a, a standard psychological skills tra- training. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't I don't work in that way. And I think the quote unquote third wave um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which has an acceptance based paradigm. Um, probably wouldn't work in that way either, uh, you know, where you may be putting sort of good over bad and using positive statements. Um, I will use some, uh, instructional cues. So for instance, for a shooter, you know, if we're in a training setting, it could be elbow. So you making sure that elbow is in and underneath the ball, or it can be just an instructional thing, but not, uh, you know. I'm a bad MF or, or, or statements like that necessarily. Um, yeah. But with, within the field, I think there's some people that work in a, in a self-talk way. I, I don't necessarily do. I, I am noticing uh, or coaching, noticing the thought stream. And quite honestly, you said it. I, I, I think, um, you know, the expression pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Um, really resonates for me. I think we're all going to have our relationship to difficulty or hardship or perceived difficulty or hardship. Uh, we're all going to experience moments of loss, of, of change, of unforeseen circumstance that we may feel is thrust upon us that we don't anticipate. Yeah. And so we have, um, you know, in those moments, we can choose how we respond to those things that arise, often unbidden without our asking them to. And that can be feelings, that can be fear, that can be doubt. How do we respond to that? You know, there's a Viktor Frankl line that I love a ton, which is um, between stimulus and response, um, we have the power to choose. Hmm. And I think mindfulness widens that, uh, that, that moment of the power to choose. Who will we be in this moment? Who will I be? That power. So it's not just stimulus. Something happens in our environment and we're immediately reacting. You know, for me in basketball, I always equated it to the team. When I when when I, I knew I was working with a really good, sophisticated offense, the defense could present anything they wanted and the offense could solve that problem in real time and find a counter for whatever the defense presented. And they had the ability to calmly respond to whatever came up in the moment. Now, we often had to train extensively to get to that point. I think the same is true with the mindfulness in in terms of the ability to widen that space between stimulus and response and choose. And I think training that up, and I think that's the ability to... um, for athletes or for anyone to be able to find ways to work with the emotions, the thoughts, the circumstances, um, 
inevitable change, inevitable loss. A pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. We have to, we have choices. And in that moment, um, you know, when you described, which was really vivid, of an athlete that cares so much and had had so much prior to success, and now something is coming up in their career internally that's affecting them and trying as hard as they can to figure out what to do. Yeah. And a big, big part of that is avoidance. Make it go away. Work it to death. Outwork it. Do other things to distract me. Yeah. And yet there it is. Yeah. Yeah, for me it was going out and partying or, like you said, uh, I resonated with what you said about exhausting yourself as a, whether that was conscious or subconscious, as a way to distract myself from the underlying pain and insecurity and doubt and all of that. And yeah, I'm very grateful that I collided with someone who could show me a different path. And I'm also happy that these these techniques are becoming more widely adopted in, in sports. I have a couple questions for you personally. Um, do you have any habits or practices that you find especially value valuable in your own life for mental health and performance? Do you have your own meditation practice or any other habits that you find really useful? Yeah, I would say every day I get some time to get still. Um, and so for during spring training, it's early wake up. So I would get up at, at 4 AM before, uh, heading in and it was actually great. I mean, it was still dark out and, um, you know, at spring training, I had a, a quiet place. I was on my own. So that was 30 days. It felt like a, almost a silent retreat. <laughs> um, but I was part of in and out of a temp, a contemplative community, meaning uh, the, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction. I lived in Boston, mm-hmm. you know, they were out uh, a little further West in the state. And, you know, he, uh, he was at that since the 1970s and MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction had uh, teacher training. So I would go to Omega and I would do trainings with them and they would have silent portion of that. And I've done some other retreats where there've been silent portions, but over the last few years, I haven't. Um, and I also went to insight meditation center and Barry uh, center in, in Massachusetts. Mm. So I would do retreats there, but I haven't been part of that contemplative community for years. And I feel it's difference mm. um, in my life, but I do get, I will use a Headspace app. I use um, some of Head, Sam Harris. Um, I like some of the Thich Nhat Hanh recordings. I'm a huge fan of, of, of Jack Cornfield. I think he, he works the, uh, the compassion space so well in his yeah. teachings. Um, yeah. he, he's got a lot on forgiveness. He's got a lot on, on uh, developing compassion, self-compassion, other compassion, um, meta practice. I, I really like his stuff a lot. And then I'll do some unguided stuff, which is just, uh, you know, usually 20 minutes hmm. of just being in stillness, either seated or uh, some cases lying down with my feet up. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, that's all great. Jack Hornfield's really great. I've, I'd like to be more, get more familiar with his work because 
I've heard him speak a few times and he's really, really powerful the way he describes some of these concepts. He's, he's great. Curious. He, uh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. no, I was just curious if you, now that you've been a coach and a mental performance coach and you've had all these experiences working with other athletes and seeing how the game looks from that perspective. I'm wondering if you, I'm wondering how you reflect on your own experience as a player. Could you remind me what your playing career was like? And <laughs> if, if, um, if you think about your own time as a player, now that you've seen it from the other side at all. Yeah, I think you brought this up on the on the call that we had a while back, and and you know at fifty I have to go back some time. Um, <laughs> my my playing career didn't go in, in into into college. I I tried to walk on at Boston University. Uh, I made it two days into a tryout and uh, was was very overmatched. Um, and my playing, I mean, I played organized sport, uh, soccer. Um, Pop Warner football, baseball was what I took the furthest, um, you know, all the way through high school with travel teams, I think, with baseball. I do think, um, you know, a bit of performance anxiety showed up for me in baseball at the plate in my high school experience. And I think this is where I started to go on this journey a little bit, where uh, on offense, when I was in the batter's box, I... As I got further along in my career, I actually started to have an exit strategy in the batter's box where I started uh, focusing less on what I was going to do with each pitch and worry more about, can I get out of the way if a ball's thrown at me? Hmm. And that impacted my ability to hit the baseball in a major way. Hmm. Um, there was a little bit of fear and a little bit of nervousness that had crept into my game that wasn't there until I would say... Uh, maybe my junior year of high school. And so I wrote about this in, in some of my doctoral work. And, you know, it was something that I think put me on a path of, okay, you know, what's that about? Um, and where did that come from? And, you know, how did I manage it at the time? Um, you know, and at the time I, I think, uh, I pretended as if it wasn't bothering me, but it was clear in my performance, uh, mm. that it was, and I fell in the batting order, uh, because of it. Um, but I think over the years I've had opportunities to do a lot of self-reflection and, and go on a lot of the contemplative retreats and uh, reflect back on that. And I think there were some circumstances going on in my personal life that it wasn't just showing up in the batter's box, but it was showing up in other areas of my life uh, related to uh, grief and loss um, mm -hmm. during my adolescence. Mm -hmm. that, would that would play out for years, um, you know, as I processed uh, a loss of a parent. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, it's amazing. It's an amazing reminder of how interconnected all of these things are, and how a player who's struggling in his or her sport might have something else going on in his or her life, and it's, it's you don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. So, and do do you think that experience? I guess it's hard to know to do an ad hoc look back, but do you think that experience 
influenced your career path? Like if, had you not had that experience with your fear in the batter's box, might you have picked some other route? Do you think that that really was the start of your interest in this space? I I think that, and then I think, um, you know, dealing with grief um, during my adolescence and not understanding what was going on internally, not having language, not uh, having an awareness and an understanding of what that experience was and how disruptive it was for me, not just in sport, but in so many other domains of my life. And so sent me on a journey of a way to sort of uh, to process that. And and athletes, um, you know, it's one of the things that I enjoy the most. I'm the the person and the player for me are inseparable. Yeah. There there are messages within the sport environment to compartmentalize, to bury it, to separate. Don't bring that shit with you to the field. Hmm. But short term, those strategies to repress and avoid, I think might work and a person can maintain focus. But that lack of um, psychological and spiritual hygiene, I think will catch up yeah. over time. And I think the person and the player are inseparable. And so if the player feels unseen, meaning all of who they are, doesn't have a seat at the table over time, if they're struggling, it's going to be really, really difficult for them. And so the ability for me in my work to listen, uh, to provide a human face to what at times could be a production business, mm -hmm. and, and, and rightfully so. I mean, professional sports has bottom line, um, you know, imperatives. Yeah. Uh, there are teams that need to make money in order to to to. Uh, pay players and and people that work there. So there are there's a whole results and production side of that. But I get to be a humanist in that environment and try to connect with people and and help them bring all parts of who they are to the experience without denying, repressing or pretending like something's not wrong. And I think just the ability to have some of those conversations and to be seen and heard, I think is really important. And I think also I work from a, a strong believer in self-determination theory that people have a deep psychological need to feel competent and really good at something, uh, to have autonomy where they have some choice and voice in a circumstance where they don't feel overly controlled by others, and then to feel like they belong, like they're a valued member of a worthwhile group. And you and I talked about this earlier on when we were talking about a low status member. To be a high status member and to be someone that contributes at a very high level to something's success feels really good and affirms a sense of tribe and belonging and community. Yeah. When someone loses that status, do I belong here? Do I belong? Am I valued? Am I an imposter in this circumstance? Do I fit in? Am I a part of this tribe? Do they see me? Those things are really, really uh, core psychological needs. And I think sometimes uh, the ability to work with someone that has some training in that direction and is not concerned so much with their batting average or their power numbers or their exit velo, which are important, hmm. I think is affirming to the person that they are and some of their struggle and they don't have to hide 
or they don't have to try to find ways to cope. Um, numbing is a really powerful strategy for a lot of folks when they're dealing with intense affect and feelings. Drinking, yeah. um, eating, things that provide short-term comfort but don't progress you towards your long-term goals. People choose those things because the feeling states are so aversive. And I think the ability to connect with another human and have some outlets there, I think has real value. Yeah, well, that was, that was great. Thank you for that. That's, that's really, really great stuff. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. A couple more questions here to, to close. Are there any books and or resources that you think are must reads for an athlete who wants to improve in the mental side of sports, I guess that could be must must read or must watch or must listen. Does any particular resource jump out as something that you might recommend to a player? Yeah, I, I Billy, I'm probably biased here, you know, based on the things that I, I, I get really excited about, but uh, you know, George Mumford weaves in some traditional sports psychology with, um, Buddhist mindfulness uh, that he, you know, spent some time in that MBSR community and then uh, had lots of reps within the pro sports space. The mindful athlete, I think, has lots of really good lessons in there. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm a fan of that. I'm a fan of um, Chop Wood, Carry Water, which is, I I mean, written in a parable form. And it's a it's explores uh, excellence and and what it means to be a master of something, how to, how to approach mastery. And Kobe Bryant works this space quite a bit. There are a number of athletes that are so interested in conquering their opponent and dominating their opponent. And the mastery approach is a little bit different. It's a pursuit of excellence and what's the best possible expression of my abilities and who I am as a person and a human and reaching my fullest potential. And it's not reference to another. It's not in reference to another, vanquishing another. Hmm. And that that book, I think, does a great job of talking about a process approach and about a mastery approach. And it makes me think of the Lao Tzu quote that, you know, um, power over others is strength, but power over self is mastery. I love that. It's really, I, I, to me, I mean, I just, it's so beautifully put. And it's, it's just such a nice way to view competition. I think in, in certain martial arts um, disciplines, they, they bow and they thank the opponent because the opponent is so important in their path to excellence. A really good opponent helps Iron sharpens iron. A really good opponent helps you be your best. Yeah. It helps you approach mastery. They're not to be dominated or embarrassed or disrespected, but it's a dialectic. You're in it with your opponent and they're helping you towards mastery. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I The Mindful Athlete was one of the pivotal books for me. I read that the summer after my junior season. It was very influential. I've read it multiple times. I love it. I'll have to check out Chop Wood, Carry Water. That that sounds fascinating. And what you said about the, the competition being something you respect and not necessarily something you want to dominate or embarrass, that 
is a concept that I've been more interested in lately and something you, you reflect on your experience as a fan, any sports fan, even if you're a big fan of a team, like I'm a huge Blazers fan and I'd love to, you know, I want them to win all the games that I watch, but let's say I'm watching a Blazers game and their best player gets hurt in the first half. If you pay close attention to that moment, you might be part of you might be excited that you have an easy win or an easier win, but there's another part of you that is knows that the whole moment got robbed of the potential of this great matchup, right? And it's the same reason why you, know, you talk at the water cooler. That was a great close game. Everyone likes to see when the competition when the competition is intense and there's a great matchup. It brings out the best in everyone involved it's much more interesting than to see your team just stomp someone who's not very good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. It got me, uh, it got me, <laughs> no, got no. me fired up. It, it, <laughs> it, and the old coach of me from basketball thinks about it. Um, you know, in some ways the, the, the dunk has been fetishized and there's elements of humiliation in the game. You dunk on that dude, you dunk in his face, you humiliate him. Mm. But for me as a coach, the things, the artistry and the things that really get me, like watching the Spurs when they beat the Miami Heat, mm. watching the Golden State Warriors and their joyful expression of basketball, watching the Miami Heat last season, it was five-person basketball. The ball was moving. It was moving freely. They were connected. And to me, it was artistry. And it's yeah. a, it's an expression of the game played at a really, really high level in a team way. And it's not that, you know, celebrating of just one play that is humiliating one dude because he got dunked on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and, and every once in a while in sport, you'll see those uh, moments pop through, and it is fascinating to watch where you see not just star power and a few players sort of dominated, but you see five-person basketball happening. That Spurs team that beat the Heat with all those European players and the way they moved the ball and the way they dominated, they won games by 30 I don't know if I've seen basketball in a professional environment expressed that way. God, um, yeah. I remember even Wade and LeBron in like their post game after that last loss, they were just like, sheesh, like, I don't know who could have beat them. <laughs> they were on, they were on some other level that night. <laughs> like, yeah, they were incredible in that series. That was, that was something to watch. I, I don't know if I've seen it. And it, it was an NBA version of basketball in America that was, you don't see that very often. And then, and then Golden State came out with a beautiful game too. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I, I digress, but I, I got excited by your point and it just, it just made me think about this, this uh, mastery approach. And I think the Spurs have it baked into their values too. I, I think um, joyfulness is, is a chief value in what they do um, yeah. and the way they go about their competition. It, it has a joyfulness to it. And it has a uh, a beautiful team concept to it, yeah. And it's an expression of sport. I think at a at a very high level, yeah. And the way, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, about holding a serious moment lightly and not uh, like you, I think I love the, what you said about not choking the ball. It seems like Popovich, you know, you'd see him joking around 
and trolling the, the, the reporters after a playoff game lost press, press conference. He seems to have mastered that balance between seriousness where he'll yell at, you know, Tim Duncan or Tony Parker, even though they're all stars, but he can, he can also joke around and have some levity. It's pretty, I've been a, a huge fan of him my whole life. And division three coach at Pomona Pitzer started out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's a, a real art in coaching. Um, the ability to be at times when needed directive and, and, and creating a task focus creating a really heightened sense of concentration and task focus. And then the other times, which is often very difficult for coaches, um, control can be, or uh, controlling nature could be an occupational hazard for coaches, but knowing as Greg Popovich says, when to get the hell out of the way. Mm-hmm. And that is a big coaching moment too. When do you get out of the way and allow that expression and allow those leadership moments and allow that that to breathe Hmm. and where you get dynamic decision makers dynamic playmakers you get elements of freedom and beauty and artistry into the game it's not choked with all task yeah yeah i love that well you've been so generous with your time finish with one more question here if you could give one piece of advice to someone who wants to succeed in your field of mental performance coaching what would it be well, uh, coming out of a training program, um, I think uh, a lo- myself and, and some others that I've, I've spoken with, you know, they want to come out and have impact. But I would say listening, listening first, um, getting to know athletes and getting to know coaches and getting to know contexts. I didn't talk a lot about it, but uh, a system lens on things. Uh, the environment and the culture matters a lot, and it influences and shapes behavior, I believe, in big ways. So getting to know the system and the people within it. Mm-hmm. And so listening. There's an expression um, that, you know, don't just sit there, do something. And it, mm-hmm. it's been flipped. Don't just do something. Sit there. <laughs> That's great. That should be a T-shirt. And it's the mindfulness guy in me that is always figuring out that dynamic between being and doing, Mm -hmm. being and doing. And that right intention, right effort that uh, George Mumford talks about in Mindful Athlete, making sure that when I am speaking, that when I am doing something, it's coming from the right place. It has a player's best interest at heart. It has a coach's best interest at heart. Um, but often there's the impulse to rush in, intervene, uh, affect change for various reasons. Um, and so <laughs> don't just sit there, do something. Don't just do something, sit there is, <laughs> is, for me, it's preferencing a little bit of being, being able to be present with a situation, maybe not have all the answers, do some listening, see what the needs of the environment are, and then timing. You know, the timing of when a message is delivered is just so vital if it'll be received. Hmm. When a student is ready, a teacher will arise. Yeah. And so much of my coaching, I was a blunt force instrument giving feedback where feedback wasn't wanted. Hmm. 
And so trying to be patient and when an ask comes, maybe have something to offer, not a lot, just a little something, and then get off of it. And then maybe another opportunity arises like that, which leads to a further conversation. Um, but really trying to time the feedback and, uh, and also uh, not be too high volume and, and to listen as much as possible. Nice. That's great advice. I have to squeeze this in. Have you read The Inner Game of Tennis? Did I ask you that already? Galway? Yeah. 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 I, I, a long time ago, yes. And he's got, is it System 1 and System 2? I think self one and self two, right? Yes, yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. So that what you said there reminded me of his message, where he was a professional tennis coach, and he noticed to his bewilderment that when he stopped giving instructions one day, the players he was working with started performing much better. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, "Well, what what do I do about this?" So he developed this unique style of basically just getting the player to pay attention to where the ball is and where their racket is rather than trying any techniques or, you know, mm. criticizing themselves. It was this, the art of non-judgmental awareness that he taught. And his book is amazing. Uh, as, as you, you probably remember. Yes. And he, he was, a, I mean, a revolutionary in that and very early bringing those ideas, um, into that sports space. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, the one thing I would say is some people, that non-judgmental space, that holding space and witnessing development without trying to intervene and get in the way, to some, doesn't look like coaching. Mm. It, it's mm. not the idea, their idea of coaching. Right. It's, it's very, very subtle. It's, it's, it's creating an environment for learning and risk-taking. But to the casual eye, like, what am I paying you for? <laughs> yeah. Right. What's going on here? Yeah. Right. So. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And it's been so much fun talking to you. And I've learned so much in both of our conversations. And I know this will be a value to the people who listen to this. So I really appreciate it. And, um, I'm happy you're out there helping athletes. It's it's uh it's so so great to learn more about you and and what you're teaching. Billy, thanks for having me. It was a, a treat to have these two conversations with you. And uh, can I get on the wait list for the book? I'll be sending you a book. Yes, you'll, you'll be on the, the the short list for sure. Absolutely. Okay. All, All right. right. I I will read the book, and you and I will have a follow up conversation. Hopefully. Excellent. I can't wait for that. Thank you so much, Rob. All right, take care. Okay, have a good night. Bye-bye. If you'd like to support me and the show, one of the best ways to do that is just to simply share it with someone who you think might like it. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this. The best way to stay in contact with me and my work is through my newsletter, which you can find at billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. And my new book, Harder Than I Thought, Easier Than I Feared, is now available for pre-order. And you can find that at billyhanson.net forward slash book and get links to Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other online stores. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.
It's the sauce.